Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah rabbil alamin. Wassalatu wassalam. Ala ashraf al-anbiya wa sayyid al-mursaleen. Wa habib al-ahl al-alamin. Abil Qasim Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Wassalatu wassalam ala ahli bayta tayyibina tahirin. La siyama maulana wa sayyidi sahib al-asri wa zaman. Ruhi wa arwahu al-alamin. Lahu al-fidah wa ajalallahu ta'ala farajahu al-sharif. وَلَانَتُ دَائِمَتُ عَلَىٰ عَدَائِهِمُ الْمُنْكِرِ فَدَائِلِهِمْ الْلَانِ لَا قِيَامِ يَوْمِ دِينَ مَا بَعْرَ بِشْرَحْ لِي صَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِي أَمْرِي وَحْلُ لُقْتَةً مِلِسَانِ يَفْقَهُ كَوْلِي For the hastening of the return of our 12th Imam, one salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. This past Ramadan, we had been going through Surah Al-Qalam, chapter number 68 of the Noble Qur'an, and for this evening and the few sessions that we have between now and the beginning of the month of Muharram, I wanted to continue and conclude in the commentary of this chapter. Um, there's only about three portions of the surah left to go over. And so tonight I want to look at part 14 in a collection of about eight verses under the topic of how do we judge. Um, so basically what I want to do is just continue from this point on forward tonight. And for those who were here with us in the month of Ramadan, you'll recall that Surah Al-Qalam, it had um, some introductory verses. Allah has been speaking on various themes in the introduction. And then the main crux of our discussion over Ramadan was about Ashabul Jannah, the inheritors of gardens. And it's a lengthy story about some young men who inherited gardens from their father. And they were not... Um, they did not fulfill their obligations to Allah. And so ultimately, and at the end of the story, when we concluded, what ended up happening is that their gardens were basically completely destroyed by Allah because of the greed that they had shown. And so when we continue tonight in this discussion, in the review of the next eight verses, one of the things that we should keep in mind is that story of Ashab al-Jannah, how they were given so much bounty and blessings by Allah, Allah had favored them with so much in their lives. And because of the fact that they did not give into charity, they did not take care of the needy people of their society, ultimately Allah ended up destroying everything that they had. And they were basically left penniless, and they were left to fend for themselves. And so when that discussion closed, they basically had made istighfar, they had repented to God. And they had confirmed the fact that they would try and rectify their ways. In this discussion tonight, looking first at verse number 34, Allah says, إِنَّا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِنَّ رَبِّهِمْ جَنَّاتٍ نَعِيمٍ That surely those who guard against evil, who have taqwa, they should have with their Lord gardens of bliss. One of the things that we see in the Qur'an, and this is a reality of our life, is that in order for us to appreciate something, we tend to have to know the opposite of it. You can't appreciate the light until you have darkness. You don't appreciate the warmth of summer until you feel the cold of the winter. You don't appreciate rewards and blessings until you have a loss of those blessings. And so Allah does the same thing within the Qur'an. He will give us these you know, opposite, the polar opposites for us to think about and reflect upon. You know, even in our own day-to-day -day life, you know, we know that if we do something, let's say in school, we get a reward. Let's say we obviously do good in an exam, we get a good mark, we get something maybe out of that. 
Obviously, if you speed on the highway and you are caught by a police officer, you know that there is a penalty for that. And so Allah did the same thing here in this, in this story, in this chapter, is He first gave us the outcome of those who were not pious, who did not follow the teachings that had been given to them by their father. And so they lost everything. They lost those gardens, those lush forests that they had. And now here Allah says that those who have the taqwa, who have that guarding themselves against evil, that they should have gardens of bliss. So Allah is showing us the outcome of the negative on, the, on one side, and then He's showing us the positive, that when we have this quality of taqwa, and, and taqwa is something, and I'll just mention this very briefly, that taqwa is not something that you know, we can say that we have achieved in our life. For example, when we pray Fajr today, when we prayed our Fajr this morning, we could literally check that off, that for today in history, we finished our Fajr prayers, it's done with. I don't have to redo that Fajr again. Tomorrow will be another Fajr for another day, and so on and so forth. When we go for Hajj, and we do our Hajjatul Islam, the one-time Hajj which is wajib on every able-bodied Muslim man and woman, if they fulfill the criteria, once that Hajj is complete, you don't have to go back again. That action is now completed for us. But taqwa is not like that. Taqwa, nobody can say that I have taqwa and now I'm done. Because taqwa is how we usually define it or translate it is our awareness of Allah, our conscious awareness of Allah within our lives, and us following the, the, you know, what Allah would expect from us at each and every stage of our life. And so that really never ends. That is a continuous quest to attain taqwa and to maintain it, to preserve it every time that we you know, are in any situation, whether it be with other people or even with ourselves. But Allah shows us that those who have taqwa, that they will be the inheritors of these gardens of bliss, that they will be given the reward because of what they earned in this world. In the next two verses, verses 35 and 36, Allah says, That shall we treat those who submit to the truth as we treat the guilty sinners? What has happened to you? How do you judge? Allah is showing us here. He's again hoping to instill in our minds the story of the Ashabul Jannah, the, the people who own these gardens. And to show us that when you are of that nature, when you don't care for other people, and Allah compares and contrasts that to people who have taqwa, Allah says that you can't compare these two together. The righteous can never be compared to the sinners. Right? You can't say that we're all good, we're all equal, we're all going to heaven. You know, this is a fallacy that sometimes some people bring out, that all religions are equal, and we're all going to God. And we're told sometimes, oh, you can't judge people. Don't judge people and critique their lives. Even if they're open sinners, don't critique them. And to an extent, yes, we should not be worried about others. We should be looking at ourselves, worrying about our own actions. But at the same time, Allah tells us that you cannot compare two polar opposites, right? Even in Dua Kamil that we just read this evening, just a, a short while ago, Allah tells us, أَفَمَنْ كَانَ مُؤْمِنًا كَمَا كَانَ فَاسِكًا Is the believer like the open sinner? Allah says, لَا يَسْتَوُونَ They're not equal. They're never equal. 
So a righteous believer can never be compared to a sinner. They are at two different levels, two different plateaus. Obviously that doesn't mean we disregard the sinner. No, we still have to work with them. We still have to guide them. They may not know, you know right from wrong. They may not have been exposed to religious teachings. But we can never say that those who are at those two polar extremes are ever equal. Allah Himself never allows us to give, us, to give that definition between the two groups. And then Allah tells us, مَا لَكُمْ كَيْفَ تَحْكُمُونَ What is wrong with you? Why do you judge in this way? So again, it, you know, and there's a multiple other angles we could look at this. I don't want to go into too much depth tonight. But it becomes a lesson for us as well as Muslims that our judgment, our passing judgment, it needs to be based on a Quranic narrative. Right? Sometimes when we live in a society that is rampant in sin and debauchery, we tend to turn a blind eye to it, but we tend to feel that it's not my business, and we almost also become you know, just indifferent to sins happening around us. We'll say, well, they're doing that sin, why should I bother even thinking about it? I'm not going to worry about it. But we have to realize that we have a concept of our, of within our teachings that we have to be concerned about sins happening in our community, in our society. We can't be on the fence and say, well, they're doing what they want, it doesn't affect me, it doesn't affect me. No, it will ultimately affect us in ways that we may never even you know, come to realize. Going on from here in the next two verses, verses 37 and 38, Allah says, أَمْ لَكُمْ كِتَابٌ فِيهِ تَدْرُسُونَ Or do you have a book wherein you read that you would be saved? إِنَّ لَكُمْ فِيهِ لَمَا تَخَيَّرُونَ That indeed you have therein in those books what you choose. What Allah is doing here in these verses, especially these two, and even the previous two, is He's showing us, and He's speaking directly, indirectly to these people who are the guilty sinners. And he's saying to them that don't think that you are equal to the believers. Don't think that you have a covenant with God, that you can do as you wish, and that you would be absolved of your actions because you have some special status with Allah. Allah says, you know, do you think that you have some revelation that came to you that says that whatever you are guilty of, well, you would be absolved of it? Right? Unfortunately, even in today's day and age, we have this mentality non-Muslims and Muslims alike, that I can do what I want, I can sin as much as I wish, I can do whatever I would like to do, because I have a ticket to paradise. I, for example, am a Muslim, or I'm a follower of the Ahlul Bayt, or I come to the Majalis of Muharram, and so that one week or ten days of Muharram is a ticket to sin for the rest of the year. And sometimes we allow such thoughts to get to us. We'll say, well, the Ahlul Bayt will come and do shafat. They will intercede for me. And indeed, there is intercession. We've talked about this in the past in a series of discussions. Intercession is a reality in Islam. It's a verified fact of the Qur'an. The Hadith speak about it. But when the Ahlul Bayt were asked about sinning and their intercession, for example, the sixth Imam had a very profound saying when a companion came to him and says, you know, I do these sins, I commit acts of iniquity, um, but you know, I am hoping that your shafaat is there. 
And the Imam replied that, yes, our shafat, our intercession, we will step in for you on the day of judgment and advocate on your behalf. But the Imam says, I worry about your state in Barzakh when you die and you're in your grave. Because at that stage, there is no intercession. The Prophet, the Ahlul Bayt, they don't intercede for us at that level, at that point, even pre-death and the time of death and in the grave, we are basically on our own with our own actions. And so we have to realize that we don't have a covenant with Allah. We're not chosen. Nobody is chosen by Allah to be spared the fire of hell. Right? They, these are all things that we have to deal with. We have to work with our own actions in order to safeguard ourselves. Nobody has been given a covenant by Allah. Allah didn't promise anybody. Allah did not guarantee anybody that they would go to heaven. There is no guarantee in any of these things. In the next verse, verse number 39, verse 39, again Allah continues in this theme. And He says to the people who feel that they're going to paradise, He says, أَمْ لَكُمْ أَيْمَانٌ عَلَيْنَا بَالِغَةٌ إِلَىٰ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ إِنَّ لَكُمْ لَمَا تَحْكُمُونَ he says, or have you received from us, meaning from Allah, an agreement, a covenant, confirmed by an oath that will last until the day of judgment, that you would have whatever you wanted? So again, Allah is showing us, and you know, keep in mind that these were also ayat which Rasulullah was receiving, which he was conveying to the polytheists, the disbelievers, that they had these thoughts within their mind as well, that you know, they're going to be safeguarded. They had incorrect notions of Allah. They didn't have a, uh, or, or, or of what the day of judgment would entail. And so they had all of these false notions that they would be saved. They wouldn't have to believe in Rasulullah. They would continue in their previous ways. And that they had all of this level of guidance and protection from Allah. So here in this verse, Allah tells them that, Do you have some covenant? Did Allah give you a promise? And that promise is last until the day of judgment that... You can have whatever you want from Allah. Obviously these are rhetorical questions. Allah knows the answer. And Allah knows that this, and the answer to each and every one of these verses is the negative. But Allah does this sometimes. He'll pose a rhetorical question in the Qur'an for you and I to think about it. For you and I to reflect upon it. Right? He knows the answer, obviously. The Prophet knows the answer. And I would say even those who were reading these ayat coming down to them, they knew the answer that they didn't have a covenant with Allah. There was no revelation coming to them from Allah that guaranteed them safety to the day of judgment. They didn't have any way to you know, firmly accept that they were saved. These were all just, again, fancy notions that they had, which Allah was showing them through these, this form of, of rhetoric, of discussion, that all of your thoughts are null and void. Coming to the conclusion... Verses 40 and 41, Allah says, Salhum ayyuhum bidhalika za'im. Ask them, which of them will vouch for that? Meaning, which of these people that are around you, O Rasulullah, all of these polytheists, the disbelievers that don't want to believe in you, that say that they have proof that they're going to heaven, that they are saved, Allah says, ask any of them, who would confirm any of this? Meaning that, you know, even if you were to ask them, they're not going to say that they have this. They have no way to prove it. 
But again, it's just a thought that they used to have. Just like many of us as Muslims again, we have a similar thought that we are saved. We're going to Jannah. We've done this act. We've cried. We've you know, done some action which we feel to be at a grand scale, which is very trivial maybe in the sight of Allah. But we think that we have done something great because of whatever little we've done. And then Allah brings the last uh, question, the last, you know, this rhetorical question to them. And He says, أَمْ لَهُمْ شُرَكَا فَلْيَعْتُوا بِشُرَكَائِهِمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ Or do they have any partners who they associate with Allah? If they do, if they think that they have gods that are with Allah, and those gods will intercede with them, Allah says, so let them go and ask their partners, these gods, whom they associate with Allah, if they are truthful. So Allah is showing us that there is no way out for these kinds of individuals. Not only the, again, not only the polytheists that the Prophet was around, but even as an extension to us, we have no excuses. Even as I mentioned, intercession, shafat is there. But the hadith and more importantly, even the verses of the Qur'an, when they speak about intercession, they are very clear on how intercession will come about, who has the right, will intercession always be accepted? Because Allah tells us sometimes, فَلَن تَنْفَعَهُمْ شَفَاعَةُ الشَّافِئِينَ Their intercession will never help the people. So intercession itself, which is a vast topic, we see that even that is not a full guarantee that we would be able to get out of the predicament that we're in. And so, if we don't have that guarantee, you and I as Muslims, as followers of Ahlul Bayt, if we don't have a solid guarantee from Allah or the Prophet or the Imams that they will definitely you know, intercede because their intercession is based on permission by Allah, and we don't know what's going to happen from death until the Day of Judgment, and we don't know exactly how Allah will deal with us even on the Day of Judgment, what scale will He use to weigh our actions? What measurement would be used for our sins? Would we have more good actions than bad? Would we have done, um, for, ask forgiveness for our sins? Because we don't really have an answer to any of these questions with ulti, you know, ultimate certainty, we have to basically tread very carefully in our day-to-day -day life to ensure that we don't break the rules of Allah. But, and obviously we know that as humans we are prone to sin, we are prone to break the laws of Allah, that the remedy that we have is asking forgiveness from Allah, trying to change our ways, trying to come back onto the right path, that is what tawbah is all about. So that even though we might not be guaranteed uh, intercession, at least we have done our best to make it to Allah with a clean slate. I'll just mention two lessons that we can reflect upon from this selection of verses. One of them is that when it comes to training and teaching others, whether it be children, our own children, or grandchildren, or if we are teachers within our Sunday school system, or we're trying to train and nurture communities, we need to be balanced in how we do this. So yes, we always are encouraged to speak about Jannah. We read ayat of the Quran about paradise. But we have to realize that we also need that threat of hellfire every now and then. Because we as humans functions like this. We, we as humans function in this way. Again, the example that we see so often when you drive on the highway, I don't know about Alberta, but in Ontario they have a sign where if you go 50 kilometers over the speed limit, they clearly tell you that you will have a maximum 
of a $10,000 fine and your car would be impounded for six months. So they tell you right away that this is the warning. If you want to break the law, go ahead. But if you are caught by an officer of the law, a, a police officer, that this is the penalty you will get. And so sometimes as humans, we need that warning from outside surroundings. We need Allah to tell us that this is the penalty. Right? And this is why you see in the Quran that there is a complement of verses about Jannah, verses about Jahannam, verses of paradise, verses about hell. There is blessings, the fruits and the gardens of paradise. There is hellfire because we need to have that balance in our lives. And last but not least, and we'll conclude with this, is that Allah's reward and punishment system is based on His justice. Mostly on His justice, Allah will deal with us. But we also keep in mind that although Adalat is one of our pillars of our religion, is one of the usul of our, our, our belief system, we believe Allah to be just. He would never do injustice to us or to anything in His creation. But ultimately, we also ask Allah, as we have a famous dua, we have a famous supplication, where we ask Allah to judge us by His rahmah, His mercy, and not His justice. And it's important to know and understand that dua, because as we've been told in other traditions, and our scholars have told us that were Allah to judge you and I solely by His justice, probably very few people would make it to Jannah. If it was only on a justice, but it's always, we have to look at the rahmah of Allah, the compassion, the mercy of Allah. And again, even in, I'll give you one example, and I'll conclude with this tonight, is even in the world that we live in, we see the exact same thing. If you are caught speed, speeding, again by a police officer, let's say the limit is 60 kilometers an hour, and you're doing 80 kilometers, he has a right to give you a ticket according to justice, he can say that you went 20 kilometers over the limit. According to the, the book of, let's say, the Alberta rules of driving, the regulations, the fines, the penalties are this, this, and this. 20 kilometers over, this is how much your fine would be, this is how many demerits you will get. And this is what I'll give you. If he was going to be just, this is what the officer would do. But, you know, and I'm sure if you've ever been arrested, you know that you can appeal to the police officer and say, you know what, I was in an, I was in an emergency. I didn't realize I was speeding. I've never had a, you know, I've never broken the law before. You can ask and you can appeal to the good, kind nature of that police officer. And if he feels you're sincere enough, if he feels that this is, you know, enough of a warning for you, he might waive that fine completely. He may give you, let you go with a warning. Or he may say, you know what, I will write you the ticket as if you're doing only 10 kilometers over the speed limit, not 20. He may have, and he has that prerogative to, you know, reduce your sentence. And maybe if you go to the judge, you appeal that ticket. You may appeal to the judge's clemency and his pardon, and you may give a rationale why you had to speed that particular day. And the judge may accept what you're saying and say, you know what, I'm going to just waive this fine, and I'm going to pardon this ticket. So this is possible in our world where we realize that we are going to be judged by the courts based on justice, but we also appeal to the court on their mercy. And so if the temporal world is like that, imagine Allah, whom we're told is infinitely more merciful. Right? When the hadith were, when the Prophet would be asked, how merciful is Allah? The Prophet would give an example of, have you seen a mother 
carrying her newborn infant in her arms. And the people, the companions would say, Yes, Rasulullah. The Prophet would say, Would you ever think of a mother who just delivered a baby that she would ever harm that baby? That she would, for example, throw it away, throw it into the fire, discard that baby? And the companion said, of course not. A mother has so much love, so much love and compassion for her infant. She would never want to harm her own baby. And so the Prophet would reply that Allah is 70 or infinitely more merciful than that mother is. So if a mother would never hurt her own child, we could only imagine how merciful Allah is that He would not want us to burn in hell. He didn't create hell for us to burn. He doesn't get pleasure out of us going to hell. That's not the goal of life. The goal of life is to lead a righteous existence so we can be benefit to all of humanity, so we can be you know, benefit to one another. It's not for us to go to hell. Allah has that as a last resort, as a deterrent. But ultimately we ask Allah and we plead to Him that He deal with us with His mercy and not His justice. And as we close, we ask Allah on this blessed evening on the Thursday night that Allah accepts all of our actions of worship that we have performed in our lives. We ask Allah to forgive us for any of the sins that we may not have asked Him direct forgiveness for. We ask Allah to keep all of us and our families on the path of Islam and the teachings of Muhammad and Ali Muhammad. And last but not least, we ask Allah to hasten in the return of our 12th Imam, Imam Al-Hujjah, and that we also can be worthy of being amongst the helpers and assistants when the 12th Imam returns to bring forth a government of justice and of equality and of human rights. Let us close by remembering all of the deceased, the marhumin from our families, our communities, our friends, the ulama who have lost their lives, the shuhada who have given their lives for the sake of Islam, with a surah al-mubarakatul fatiha, but before that one salawat upon Muhammad.